Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of the Gospel about the Kingdom of God, Jesus' favorite topic. I wonder if you've noticed how Jesus conducted his evangelism. We as Christians are duty-bound to follow the instructions of Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. We all know the famous marching orders given by Jesus to his church at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 19, Jesus said, Go and teach all nations, baptize them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you, and I am going to be with you always, even until the end of the age. I note in passing the considerable mistranslation there in the King James Bible, the end of the world might give you the idea that this planet is going to be destroyed beyond repair. But the Greek text there does not speak about the end of the world, but rather the end of the age. It's a fundamentally important point to grasp that Jesus thinks of history in a linear fashion. That's to say, he thinks horizontally. And what I mean by that is simply this. Jesus considers the present evil societies, our present wicked governments, as part of this age, the wicked age preceding his second coming. At his second coming, there will occur the beginning of the new age of the kingdom of God. Jesus referred to the coming age, or even that well-known age, Luke 20, verse 35. And so the history of mankind is divided into two major sections. All the time until the second coming is to be designated as this present evil age. Galatians 1.4, you'll find Paul using the same terminology. And the time beyond the second coming, which will be the kingdom of God on the earth, with Jesus here returned to this earth and ruling with his saints, that's the coming age. And so, in Matthew 28, verse 20, Jesus said, Go and teach all nations everything that I commanded you, and if you do that, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, right up until my second coming, in other words. But notice that Jesus did not promise to be with his church unless they were fulfilling the conditions of his great charter here. And those conditions are very plain. The church is to teach everything that Jesus taught the disciples, to relay, in other words, the very ministry and message of Jesus, and to do it to all the nations worldwide until the second coming, until the end of the age. Not the end of the world, as mistranslated in the King James Bible, but until the end of the age. Now, it would be a matter of simple common sense, one would think, as well as simple obedience, to turn over one page in our Bible to the beginning of Mark's Gospel to see where it is that Jesus began with his teaching, remembering that according to Matthew 28 and verse 20, we are to relay all of his teaching to the world. So how did Jesus begin his teaching? Well, let's examine the very first command ever given by Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we find that Jesus came into Galilee heralding the Gospel the gospel of God. And what was the content of this divinely authorized message? Well, here it is. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is approaching. 
it's on the horizon, repent and believe in that gospel, the gospel of the kingdom of God. Do you see that underlying the entirety of Jesus' teaching message is this command to believe in the gospel about the kingdom of God? Now, the kingdom of God, of course, was the central idea in the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And it's an idea based itself on the gospel as it was preached to Abraham. You remember that in Galatians 3 and verse 8, Paul remarks that the gospel had been preached beforehand to Abraham. The gospel, as it was preached to Abraham, had to do with a famous seed or descendant that was to arise in the family of Abraham eventually. And, of course, above all, the gospel, as preached to Abraham, concerned the permanent gift of the land to that seed and to Abraham. The substance of the gospel, as Abraham heard it from God on a number of occasions, and confirmed and ratified, repeated, and bound on the part of God himself by a solemn oath and covenant, that gospel preached to Abraham had to do above all with the gift of the land. Now, Jesus was the recipient of that gift in the ultimate sense. The gift of the land was promised not only to Abraham, but also to his seed. And that seed was ultimately to be the Messiah, we know from history that Jesus the Messiah has arrived. He was born, and he taught, he died for the sins of the world, and was taken to the right hand of the Father. He is the one to whom the gift of the land was ultimately promised. Now, Jesus shares that gift based on the oath-bound covenant made to Abraham. He shares that gift with us and promises it to us, the land, that is, in the future. The famous words in Matthew 5, 5, tell this story with complete clarity. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. They're going to inherit the earth or the land. There's no difference in the original language between the word for land and the word for earth. And so it's entirely proper to translate that Matthew 5 verse 5 in either of two ways. Blessed are the meek, they're going to have the earth for their inheritance, or they're going to inherit the land. And that land, of course, takes us right back to the gospel promise made to Abraham that he would have the land in perpetuity and that his famous descendant, the Messiah, would also have it. Now, the land is the equivalent of the kingdom of God in the New Testament. In the very same Beatitudes in which Jesus spoke of the land as being the future inheritance of the saints, he also spoke of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God as being the objective of the faithful. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is going to be the kingdom of heaven. They're going to have the kingdom of heaven as their possession, which means that they're going to have the land as their possession. The kingdom of heaven, you see, does not mean a kingdom in heaven, but it's a heavenly kingdom that's coming to this earth when Jesus returns. Throughout the Old Testament, the faithful are looking forward to inheriting and living in the land, the promised land renewed by the presence of the Messiah. Now we know it at his first coming, Jesus never took possession of the land. In fact, his own people who should have received him as the Messiah actually rejected him from the property which was legally his according to the oath-bound covenant of the land made to Abraham and to his famous descendant, the Messiah. Now at the second coming, however, all of this will be reversed Jesus will come back to take possession of what is his. 
He's going to sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem and control the land and hence the world as the Messiah. All of the promises relating to the great land inheritance of the Messiah in the Old Testament apply to the second coming of Jesus. Jesus has never inherited the land. Abraham has never inherited the land. In fact, Abraham is now dead. It follows, therefore, that there must be a resurrection of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets precisely so that they can come into that great inheritance, the inheritance promised them in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12 and many other passages. That's the simple story of the Bible. There's a wonderful tension built into that story because we're waiting to see how God will bring Abraham into the land and how God will bring his Messiah, who is presently detained at the right hand of the Father, how God will bring him back to the earth to take possession of his rightful inheritance, the land of Israel and indeed the world. Ask of me, the Messiah is made to say in Psalm 2, and I will give to you an inheritance going to the far edges of the globe, the uttermost parts of the earth as your inheritance. That's what drives the mission of Jesus. He's looking forward to that wonderful time when the world will enjoy an era of unparalleled prosperity and peace and harmony will prevail permanently across our globe. I wonder if you realize that the word land or earth occurs simply hundreds of times in the Hebrew Bible. It doesn't have to be repeated in every verse in the New Testament because all the readers and writers of the New Testament understood that the land was the object of all the promises for the future. I have made the earth, God said in Jeremiah 27 verse 5, I have made the earth or the land, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and by my outstretched arm and I will give the earth to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Did you catch that? God intends to give the earth to those who are pleasing in his sight. Well, the one who was most pleasing in God's sight, of course, was the Messiah himself, Jesus, and he expects the Christians to be like Jesus and therefore to be pleasing in God's sight. To those, God will ultimately give the earth. Blessed are the meek, said Jesus, echoing this promise of God his Father, Blessed are the meek, they're going to have the earth as their inheritance. Now, how is Jesus going to come into his promised possession of the earth or the land or the kingdom? Jeremiah 3 verse 17 gives us a clear answer to that question. At that time, pointing to the time in the future when Christ returns, at that time they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem, for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk any more after the stubbornness of their evil heart. In those days the house of Judah will walk with the house of Israel, and they will come together from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers as an inheritance. Here we have a promise of the restoration of ethnic Israel. The actual flesh and blood people of Israel will become converted Christians at that future time. But for the moment, the church is the center of God's activity. And of course, as we know, any member of any nation may become a part of the church now, and in so doing, he becomes part of the true Israel of God. But that's not to exclude the important biblical doctrine 
of the restoration in the future of a remnant of ethnic national Israel as well. And so you see, the church is the Israel of God, prominent in New Testament times and prominent indeed until the end of this age. The church will rule with Jesus on the earth in the kingdom of God. And at that time, Israel and Egypt and Assyria, we read in Isaiah 19, will become principal nations, model nations in the new society to be organized upon the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. And so we find then in Jeremiah 23 and verse 5, a similar prophecy of conditions as they will be in the future kingdom of God. Behold, the days are coming, Jeremiah writes, when I shall raise up to David a righteous branch or descendant, a promise of the Messiah there, and he, the Messiah, will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And so you see there a picture of a restored nation of Israel. At the same time, Messiah will be reigning, and as we know from many scriptures, the saints of all the ages and of all nations will be reigning as immortal kings with Jesus in that kingdom. Blessed indeed are the meek, Jesus said, they're going to possess the kingdom, and they're going to have the earth as their inheritance, and to have that earth as their inheritance means that they will be the executive, administrative government along with Jesus in the future age of the kingdom of God. We invite you to join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.